Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Once again, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to bring the, the word this morning. Um, I thought I'd start <clears throat> with a little explanation of what's been going on in my life recently. And uh, the thing that's really, really hit me the last couple of days has been the irritation that people spell my name wrong. It's killing me. It's killing me. It seems like every day that somebody seems to think that I make pants. I don't. Uh, H-A-G-E-R-1-G-E-R. I have nothing to do with the company that owns pants. And I don't play the uh, guitar either. So um, I'm not related to him either. Uh, that's, that's just for free. Uh, has absolutely no theological bearing on any of us. But uh, I thought that uh, you should know really what's going on in my life. Um, one of the things... As you, as you realized last week, uh, you know, it was kind of a, it was a struggle bus of a Sunday. Anybody with me on that one? I think everybody that was here, uh, you understand that it was, it was kind of a rough, it was a rough service. And the Lord puts us through these times where it feels like serving God really is dragging a dead mule down the street. Anybody ever been with me there where you feel like just getting to church in the morning is the greatest possible thing that anybody has ever accomplished in the history of mankind? And, uh, and then there's weeks after that where God puts you through these valleys and then he lifts you up and he gives you victories and he gives you senses of, of accomplishment and, and satisfaction of progress and work well done. And I, it's great hearing, I mean, if you, if you heard Pastor Matt last week in his testimony time, it was interesting. And then today you see him being able to, after that week, being able to give the gospel to, to kids who are going through valleys. I mean, because that's what his week was like, ministering to people, going through valleys when he just went through valleys. And that's a great thing to hear. When we get through, uh, I've been reading, and of course, you know, what you're getting today is just an echo of my devotional life. So that's what's going on. I mean, I don't have anything special. It's just what God's doing in me. That's what you're getting. I'm reading chronologically through the Bible. Last Sunday, we talked about what? We talked about the cost and the pain associated with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there was that really difficult passage. You remember that passage where he says, if you don't hate your mother and your father and your sisters and your brother, then you're not fit to be my disciple. And that's a really hard truth to hear. And understanding it takes a little bit of, eh. He follows that up with the discourse that I want us to talk about today. And it's really completely encapsulated in the shortest verse in the English Bible. Anybody know what that is? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. When I was teaching Bible class, I actually taught uh, the pastor's kids. Uh, I taught them Bible at, at the Christian school. And uh, I, I'm, I'm the stickler guy who made them have huge, long verse memory tests that were a huge part of their grade. And they really didn't like it very much. But you know what? They learned the, the Word of God and they learned how to study Scripture. And, you know, I'm okay with that. But they would always say, you know, can we have a bonus verse? And I'm like, 
sure, I'm not going to knock off. How about John 11:35? Not that one. <laughs> we we kind of joke and mock about you know you know that being a fun verse to memorize. But I want to I want us to understand, and this is the that verse is the title verse of this whole message, because that verse really is the theme of this whole passage. It is the impact that provides the courage and endurance for those who can truly grasp the context of that verse. Remember that Jesus just gave an intense discourse on the costs of being his disciple. And that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a hard road. And with that in mind, we're going to start reading in John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. He's giving some context here. Do you remember who this Mary was? Do you remember who Mary and Martha and Lazarus were? This was a, a family that he had an intense relationship with, that he had emotional ties to. And it came to his knowledge that Lazarus is sick. Verse 3, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, as you read that phrase from our Lord, what is your takeaway? The sickness is not unto death. Go ahead and respond. What do you think? The sickness is not unto death. What do you think? Lazarus isn't going to die. And the disciples think, okay, God knows. He's okay. We can kind of let this one ride. You know, it's, it's going to be all right. Jesus doesn't need to go heal him. It's going to be okay. But the second part of that is kind of a buried lead. It's foreshadowing. And it also gives point one for us, the single purpose. Look what he says here. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He explains that this trouble is affecting the work. It's carrying out the work of glorifying God. Trouble. What's the point of trouble? We experience it every day. It may be something minor, like uh, you forgot to get an ingredient at the grocery store, or it may be something severe, like you forgot to pay your rent. Trouble. We deal with it on a continuous basis all the way through our lives, but what we look at trouble and seem to feel from it is far different than the intended purpose that God has placed it in our lives for. You see, God has a specific purpose for trouble. He tells us here that this sickness, it's not for the purpose of him dying and going home to glory and be with me and ending his pain on earth. His trouble right now, what he's dealing with now, has a purpose. I'm sharing it with you. I'm telling you now, I'm letting the story be told that this is about him glorifying God. 
Did you know that your trouble in your life, however you describe it, whatever it may be, has the same purpose? Do you understand that useful lives for God's glory have obstacles? If your life is going to be useful in the purpose of bringing glory to God, there are going to be obstacles. Consider a life with no obstacles, with no trouble, with no trial. That's the dream, isn't it? You know? Isn't that the American dream? What did he say? Uh, a chicken in every pot? Because at the time, that was, that was the trouble, was, you know, not enough food to eat. People were starving. People had nothing. That was the trouble. Can you imagine a life without trouble? Can you imagine as a farmer that every year had perfect weather? Oh, that would be nice. Can you imagine as a business owner never having a downtime? Never having a slow period? Never having obstacles with employees? Never having a turnover? Wow, wouldn't that be amazing? Never having to deal with somebody stealing from you? Wait a second, now we're beginning to look like an utopia, aren't we? That can't happen here on earth. And while it can't happen here on earth, God has seen fit to utilize the trouble that is here for his glory. Have you ever considered, uh, anybody ever been to New York City? I, I want to give a little illustration here of trouble. In some parts of New York City, the bedrock is only feet, literally just some places even just inches below where the ground normally would be. And it's complete bedrock. Now, if you're a builder, bedrock can be a kind of a, a good thing slash bad thing. Have you ever tried to put in plumbing through bedrock? I have. Uh, I was in a ditch. Uh, I was about seven feet deep down a hillside in South Carolina with red clay like seven feet up around me. And I had to get one more feet foot down so that the sewer line from this house that we were building would run to the main at the correct grade. And we hit bedrock. And I'm not just talking about like bed pebbles, we're talking bedrock. It was the biggest granite stone. I mean, we hit limestone before, no big deal. You kind of bust that out with an excavator, you're good to go. It doesn't, it can't match the teeth. The teeth will just crush it. You can go through sandstone. You hit granite with the, the, the fingers of an excavator and it sounds like nails on a chalkboard times 2,000. Imagine just the blood curdling like, yeah, up your back, yeah. It's like, and the whole excavator rattles instead of just the, yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. And I had to get down because I was the youngest. That was when I was 17. I had to get down with a 70-pound uh, a jackhammer in this hole, jackhammering out granite. Yeah. 
down in there. And uh, I was new to the jackhammer as a 17 year old. I hadn't really used one very often. This was kind of my first experience. I'm down in this hole and you maneuver a jackhammer at 70 pounds, just kind of like shoving it. And I was only like 120 at the time, 120 pounds. I'm like my whole body weight, just trying to keep it upright. And then it's shaking me. And I kind of lost control of the jackhammer a little bit and let it go a little bit too long. And if you ever used a point bit on a jackhammer, some of you guys are like, oh no, he didn't. Yes, I did. I completely buried that bit in the granite. It went right down in. You couldn't get it out. A $200 jackhammer bit right in it, seven feet below grade. I thought to myself, oh, this is bad. Now, we eventually got it out. I had to take the jackhammer off, put a new bit on, and jackhammer to the jackhammer bit to get the other one out. I did that. I got it out. It was, it was fine. But I want you to understand, it was a huge obstacle for me in building. And when you're doing that in, in Manhattan, you only have a few feet but you'll also notice that in Manhattan, they have beautifully tall buildings, especially in two main centers, downtown, midtown. Do you know why? Because there is bedrock there. Because you do have those obstacles, because they're not just obstacles, they are strength. They don't sag. Nothing slips out underneath when your foundation is rooted in bedrock. And these huge, magnificent buildings of the largest city, the most magnificent skyline on earth, are rooted on what some people see as major obstacles. And I want to explain that the lives of these beautiful saints of the scripture, like Paul and Peter, are rooted in obstacles. Had they not had the trials, had they not had the obstacles, they don't reflect the glory of God the way that he's designed their lives to. Imagine Paul without the obstacles of persecution. What would his life look like? It would look much like the Pharisees. Just a teacher teaching a different theology. But there was persecution there and there was sacrifice there. And there was self-sacrifice to the point of missionary journeys traveling the entire world for the sake of the glory of God and his gospel. Great sacrifice, great trials bring out the glory of God. But we go on further in this story. I want us to continue reading here. In the disciples in verse 8, well, actually, we'll go up to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in this place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, 
Lately, the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? If you go back to chapter 10 in the verse like 30 and following, you see the whole discourse there of the Jews trying to kill him. Not just once, but multiple times. They were in a fever pitch trying to take him out. And now he's wanting to go back to Judea, the same place where he was just chased out for his life. It's only been three months or so since he left. And here he is going back, and the, and the disciples are like, Hey, Jesus, you know that we're heading right back where they just chased us out of, right? And you're good with that. And look what Jesus responds. He says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? Now this may seem confusing to you, but I want you to understand what he's trying to get, to the, get across to them. He continues and says, If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I want you to understand, he, he uses a couple of references here to understand. One, he talks about the hours of the day, and two, he talks about light and dark. The first kind of introductory principle he's saying is, there are 12 hours in the day. And we haven't walked all 12. You ever met somebody who was a six-hour workday kind of guy or girl? You go to work, and, and they're good for six hours. Usually it's not six. If they're a six-hour workday kind of, they're usually like a two-hour workday. Like, oh, yeah, you'll get two good hours out of them in an eight-hour day. You'd probably get two good ones. Anybody ever met anybody like that? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. All you're smiling, so I know you know people like that. Have you ever watched, uh, watched baseball or something like that and seen somebody who is you know, a three-quarter quarterback? Somebody who could do it almost all the way, could get mostly there, but could never finish the job. Uh, I got my kids here, so I can't use them as illustrations. So just be grateful for you're here. I'm not using you as illustrations today. Mm. I, want, I want us to understand something. God calls us here to finish the last hour. He, he's basically saying here, there's no quitting. I'm down a journey, I'm down a road that is taking us to an eventual end. Now, you guys don't completely understand what the end is, disciples, but I do. And we're going the whole way. I'm not just going to be a uh, most of the way Christian. We're going all the way. And Jesus calls his disciples to go all the way. Not just nine hours or ten hours, all twelve. And then he says this. The person sees in the light because, in the daytime, because the light's there. And it's easy. But in the dark times, in the dark time they stumble. In the dark time they stumble because they can't see and they can't see because the light's not there. There are some, though, who, who don't stumble in the dark. Why? Because the light's in them. It's a pretty clear 
teaching that he's trying to get across here. When you rely on yourselves, yeah, you can see pretty easily when everything is easy. When there are no obstacles that you have to overcome, when there's nothing that you don't understand confronting you. But life isn't like that. And God has specifically set things in motion so that it is more than we can understand, comprehend, and expect. You know, I have often wondered why God didn't give to me dreams like he did to Joseph. You know, like, here's the next 14 years. And all the obstacles that you're going to have in the next 14 years. Oh, by the way, I'm also going to like give you the blessings in ahead too, so you know how to capitalize on them. Wouldn't that be awesome? You're like, God gives you the next 14 years, and like, here you go. See what you can do with that. You know what? I'm like, Joseph, man, I could do that. I could totally, if God gave me the next 14 years in advance, I could totally figure it out. I would have all the answers. It'd be cool. The point of this passage is that God's saying you don't get 14 years. You don't get any years. And the whole point of bringing glory to God is when it's dark and you don't know and you have no clue what to do and you don't know what's coming. How are you going to respond in those times? When those obstacles rear their ugly heads to trip you up, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? The danger that we see and the danger that the disciples wanted to avoid was safe. Not only was it safe, it was best. Why? Because that's what God wanted. Because that is in the light, if we're wanting to quote, quote the passage. We go, yes, all 12 hours, even when some of those hours are in the darkness. And the disciples kind of just go along with this. Now, look at verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then the disciples, ever the confused humans as we are, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Let him sleep. That's good. And Jesus, you know, um, he has a way of going from, you know, trying to be poetic and letting them understand to having to get really blunt. It's, it's like the teacher who teaches to all levels of the classroom, you know. And, and he gets to this next passage and he says, uh, however, Jesus spoke of his death, that they, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, he says, Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And, I mean, you can probably imagine the disciples' reaction at this point because they had just heard him early on, just, uh, you know, a couple days earlier, say, Oh, he's not going to die. Well, that's what they heard. He's not going to die. But Jesus now says he's dead. And if I'm the disciples, I've got either really confused or really broken faith right here. Have you ever been in a point where you prayed about something, prayed about something, prayed about something, and then you got an answer and you felt like it was clear? 
clear answer. And you make a decision based on the answer prayer that you got, and then all of a sudden, everything that you thought what, were just out from underneath your feet. How do you feel? What's your response? If you're me, your faith is shaken. You're angry a little bit at God. When the reality is, God answered your prayer. You didn't understand the answer to his prayer. You moved forward in a way that he still wanted you to move forward, and he's got plans that are pretty awesome coming up. I've only been able to see this in hindsight. Just going to say, because my reaction every single time is always really, really bad. It's just wrong. Almost every single time. I fail in this specific area. I see God, and then this happens, and then I'm angry, and I'm frustrated, and I'm resentful, and I pull away. And the disciples, I think, and I don't know because it doesn't say, but I think they probably feel pretty, pretty difficult. Verse 16. Uh, let, let's go back to verse 15. He just tells them that Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now Thomas, which we also know as, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas, because he's just like us, just going to say that. Doubting Thomas says, let's go to. Why? Well, we're just going to die with him. Jesus has lost it. He doesn't get it anymore. He's confused. He said that he wasn't going to die, now he's going to die, and now he wants to go back where we're all going to die. So let's just all just end it. We've given up everything this far, so there's nothing left. Let's all just go and die. Given up my livelihood, and we're just going to go do it. I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. I find that interesting. Maybe he did, and we don't have it recorded, but I find it interesting that there's no rebuke there. It's almost like Jesus is like, Stupid. You ever had children? You got children. You know what they're like. And these children, they respond to you. And you're finally at the point where it, you, you're done correcting them. And at this point, you're just going to say, okay, you need to just experience life and find out that you're wrong. Try not to make eye contact with them. You just need to understand that there's some things that you're going to have to figure out. And I'm done arguing with you, and I'm done trying to shove it down your throat. It's on you now. You've been taught. Well, I feel like that's where Jesus is. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women about, around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. I want us to pay attention to this passage here, starting in verse 20. She went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And she's hinting. I feel like there's a hint there. Whatever you ask, God's going to give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha, even though she's hinting, she doesn't quite get it. She goes, look how she responds. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's almost like she's asking for an answer to prayer, but her answer to prayer is way smaller than what God's planning on doing. I I don't know exactly what she would be trying to get at. There's a lot of conjecture here on what she meant by asking, you know, the loaded question of, but I know whatever you ask, you're going to get. We don't really know exactly what she intended. But when Jesus says he's going to rise again, that wasn't the answer that she was thinking of. Whatever she was thinking of was way more earthly. And, and he, she responds here and says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And man, what a full and complete relation of the gospel in this one just phrase right here. I am the resurrection and the life. Everything that you are talking about is encased in me. Look at me and live. What a powerful statement. Verse 26, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that she rose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Mary and Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly, went out and followed her saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, they use two different words here, similarly in the English. You see that the, um, Mary was weeping, and those that who were with her were weeping. And in the Jewish culture, they didn't cry like we cry. Um, and and this, they, they actually do cry like we cry, but in this context, this was a public kind of a, pre- a profession of your emotion. And it was an important display. And it was a display. It was loud. Where they would verbally, like, out loud, cry out and wail. And um, there were actually professional wailers, mourners, who would get hired to come to funerals. And the more people you hired to come and wail, the more you loved whoever it was that you were putting in the ground. And it was, very, it was a very public thing. And so all these Jews who were with her were either just friends who had come to help her with their public profession or, you know, just who who had an affection for Lazarus themselves. And they're all here and they're all going to the, that's where they think, they all think that they're going to the tomb. And Mary comes and she meets Jesus and she says, Jesus, had you been here, 
I know, I have faith. My faith in you is such that I know he would not have died. The exact same thing that Martha said. My faith is real. My faith is such that I know had you been here, he would have been healed. And it's full of questioning and, and upset. Didn't you get our message, Jesus? And then in verse 35, we get this recorded. Jesus wept. The word there is not the same. It is not the loud mourning. This is a silent cry. It is not for Lazarus that he cries. He does not cry a profession of emotional attachment to the one dead. When did his heart well up in him? When did, when did that start happening? Look at verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, what does it say there? At that point, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. What is it that moved Jesus to tears? It was the sight of the pain of those who loved him. When Jesus weeps here in verse 35, he does not weep for Lazarus. He weeps for Mary and Martha. He mourns on their account because these, his faithful followers, his disciples, who we just saw, he just told them just chapters before of the cost, the severe cost of following him when they experience that cost. And they have the pain that goes well with it. It is not lost on Christ. He does not overlook it. It still hurts. I'm going to use a couple of examples here. And they're bad examples because they are so so small in comparison to what Jesus feels. But as a parent, there are moments where you try and try and try to explain to your children that there's no reason to fear. Or that things really are okay. But they don't get it. Even this morning, around 5 o'clock this morning, when the thunder was really ripping, we had two visitors in our bed this morning. They came down very rapidly. It was like, boom! I was like, man, reaction time is great. I mean, they should be in track and field because as soon as that gun goes off, they're like, ah! Man, it'd be awesome. They're going to be best track stars ever. They get in bed and they know that it's just thunder here. 
and you can tell them that there's nothing to be afraid of, here, but the heart is fearful and doesn't get it. And even we as parents, we look at that and while we're like, ah, fully exasperated that they don't get it when they come crying, completely at their end, what can you do but wrap your arms around them and shed a tear with them? And Jesus here, he sees his loved ones and he's told them, there's nothing to fear. I am with you. I am the resurrection and the life. It's all going to be okay. But they come to him and they don't get it. And they still have that simple mind. And yet while he's a little frustrated, probably he still sees them in that pain of discipleship. And he wraps his arms around them. And in love, he sheds a tear with them. Oh, that's our God. Our God who sees us. We learned about him last week. He knows us perfectly and he cares even though it's our own stupidity that causes us to be where we are. He sees. The other illustration that I have is, is a little bit different. I've coached girls volleyball before and uh, coaching girls is like the hardest thing ever. Just going to say like, it is super difficult. I'm getting some really angry eyes from some of you ladies right now. It has nothing to do with your skill level or your ability to play sports because there are some amazing athletes out there as women. But I will say this, you never know which athletes going to show up on the day. It's game day. And she can be in beast mode where she's just ready to destroy everybody and everything. And then there's other days where it's just like, I don't care. <sighs> I don't know. I'm like, are you okay? Yes! <laughs> I had a little joke when I was coaching volleyball. I coached two years at First Baptist. I coached their volleyball team. And uh, we had a great team, had a lot of fun. But I made a joke one time. I, I said, I have seen every single one of you cry except for two of you. And they're like, yeah. And then the two are like, and you'll never see us cry. You know, they were that kind of personality. It'll never happen. Uh, the first game of the second season, it was like my third game with this one girl. It was only like the third game that I'd ever coached her. She was new. And uh, she's one of my best friends. It's his daughter. And uh, I, she, she, uh, she was just, oh, you'll never see it. Well, she got, she made this amazing play, full outstretched, laid out, concrete floor, hand down. And I don't know if you know what a pancake is. Pancaked the ball, popped it up, saved the point, saved the game. We ended up winning the game in three sets. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it was an amazing thing. But as she did it, she nailed her head on the concrete floor. Just completely like to the point of like, whoo, she was a little bit out of it. And of course, you know, I don't care who you are, that hurts. Tears come to your eyes. And she was crying like pretty good. 
and uh, we were in the huddle because we called time out to let her get her breath and whatever. And I looked at her and I said, are you okay? And she's like, yeah. And I go, I just saw you cry <laughs> in the huddle. She's like, no! Now, there's no, no real point of that just to give you that story, but I want you to understand this. There are moments where you push your players and 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 you practice. And you push them beyond the point of them having success. And you know at this point that they are going to hurt. Oh, yes. And as a coach, you kind of like, you're pushing them there. And you know it's going to hurt. It needs to hurt. It has to hurt. And if you've played football or soccer or, or any sport that's super competitive, you know you have coaches that their job is to make you get to a point of failure. And you get to that failure point. You get to that point where it hurts. You get to that point where you do break down and you cry and you don't have anything left in the tank. And that's where he wants you to be. Why? So that you can be built back up. Because it is the failure that drives success. And as a coach, you aren't vindictive as you do that. You don't hate your players. You love them because you know this is the only way for them to understand what it's like in the real game. This is the only way for them to understand the sacrifice and the effort that must be put out in order for you to be successful. You have to drive them beyond themselves. These intense emotions, they are a reflection of the character of God as he relates to his children whom he loves. And then I want us to kind of conclude as he gets back to his next little discourse. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. And they missed the point. They missed the point. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, again, exasperated with their misunderstanding and their lack of getting it. Look what, it, look, what look, again, he says. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself. His emotions were just, they don't get it. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, who still doesn't understand, although she was the one he specifically told, he's going to rise again. She says, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he's, he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did not I say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where he, the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. He ends here with the same way he began. Introduction, conclusion, pretty neat and tidy. His single purpose. Why, why all the troubles? That the glory of God may be seen. For without the troubles, nothing allows the glory of God to reflect quite so brightly. We need constant retraining in this area. Constant. I mean, it's every day. Because you'll hear it right now, and tomorrow you're going to go through trouble, and you're immediately going to be like, God, what are you doing? What's going on? In our Thomas words. And we just don't get it. Three points of application. The pain is not personal. God does not enjoy inflicting pain on you. It's not the pain. Pain is, is a part of the process. And the, part, the process, point two, is under control. Who's control? Do you believe that? Do you believe completely that the process that includes the pain points that you're dealing with, the trouble points that you're dealing with, is under control of the sovereign God of the universe who's made all things, controls all things, and at one day he will judge all things and hold everyone into account? Do you believe that? The pain's not personal. The process is under control. And the point, the point, the point, get the point, the point of it all, the point of it all is the glory of God. Every day, as you wake up, maybe you need to say this because you're living in constant pain. The pain is not personal. The process is under control. And the point is the glory of God. And that needs to be your lifeline as you deal with that coworker, that physical condition, that family member, the job situation, the financial problems. The pain is not personal process is under control. The point is the glory of God. Lord, help us. We are so self-centered and we miss the point of your glory. We miss the point of where you want to lead us. And God, I pray that you would work in us and remind us and retrain us constantly. And yes, we thank you, God, so much that you are the God who even in our ignorance, even in our foolishness, even in our doubt, you look at us with compassionate tears for what we're going through. Even though you've orchestrated it to the point of, of your glory and our greater good, we don't understand and we, we hurt and we question, but you love. And that's how you respond with love. And we thank you for that. You are so good and so merciful. Forgive us. Help us 
retrain us. And we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you for this opportunity to be in your word together this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.